Hello! I've got a special episode for you today, but first I have an announcement. I have some big and exciting news to share with you all, so big that I'm not going to cram it into the beginning of an episode like this. At 9.30pm Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, April 19th, I will be going on the Middle Earth Network radio station to make my announcements. So go to MiddleEarthNetwork.com, click through to the radio feed, and join me on this special occasion. I'm really looking forward to it. But now, on with the program. Today's episode is something different from your average Tolkien professor show, and I hope it will be only the first of a new category of episodes that I would love to see happen more in the future. When I started my podcast, my primary desire was to share my work on Tolkien with a wider audience, to start an academic conversation with readers outside the circles of traditional academia. Over the last two years, I have thoroughly enjoyed that conversation— In my interactions with listeners over that time, however, I've been reminded again and again of how many smart and insightful readers there are out there who are not professional academics and who would never really have the opportunity to publish their ideas. From time to time, therefore, I would like to feature work written by listeners and students to give you all a chance to hear some of the great work that other people besides me are doing. I am delighted, therefore, to bring you a paper by a longtime listener whose work I admire and whose friendship I value, Scott Holbrook Faust. Scott took part in one of my Tolkien chats a while back, you might remember. In his studies at Towson University last semester, Scott wrote a paper on Sir Gowan and the Green Knight that directly addresses the topic I assigned in my fairy class this semester, though his paper and my paper topic were written quite independently. A strange chance, if chance you call it. His essay, which is focused on the representation of Morgan Le Fay in the Arthurian tradition, deals with Sir Thomas Mowry's Mort d'Arthur as well as Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So those of you who have been asking me for more Arthurian lit discussion will get a bit of a treat. Scott's paper is called The Gift of Anun, The Sanctification of the Celtic Otherworld in Arthurian Literature. Like the guests at Bilbo's birthday party, you are probably starting to get restless with this long preamble. So without further speech, I give you Scott Holbrook Faust. The Gifts of Anun, The Sanctification of the Celtic Otherworld in Arthurian Literature by D. S. Holbrook Faust The influence of the Celtic Otherworld upon much of the Arthurian tradition has been well established. Arthur and many members of his court, particularly Merlin, Guinevere, and Mordred, Myrdin, Gwynhufar, and Medraud, are alluded to frequently in medieval Welsh poetry, such as the Triads of the Isle of Britain and the Prithae Anivin, the Spoils of Anun. In the latter, Taliesin describes a journey taken by Arthur and three times the fill of his ship, Prydwen, to a castle in the other world, in order to rescue the renowned prisoner, Gwyr, and also to bring back a magical cauldron. This cauldron is a recurrent image in Welsh poetry, which, given the otherworldly and apparently perilous nature of this quest, from which, except seven, none returned, seems to prefigure and perhaps inform the quest for the Sangrail. Marie de France admits freely, proudly it seems, to her lays having been heavily influenced by the songs sung by Celtic or Britannic bards, and of course two of her twelve lays are particularly focused on figures from Arthurian tradition. The figure of Arthur himself, as he appears in Celtic legend, where he is called the Bear, appears almost identical to how Mallory presents him nearly a thousand years later as a young, bright-spirited, and justifiably confident warlord. There are so many examples that Howard R. Patch claimed in his book on the subject that otherworld material in the romances of the Arthurian cycle is almost beyond any adequate means of estimate. 
However, despite the clear precedent for viewing Arthurian literature as intimately bound up with fairy, or Anion, the Celtic otherworld, the realm of gods, elves, and the forces that govern life and death, and as actively benefiting from this relationship, the majority view either ignores the fantastic or magical elements altogether, or regards them with reluctant tolerance, often even outright contempt. Either the focus is placed on the secular, courtly entanglements and their moral implications, e.g. the famous Arthur Guinevere Lancelot Elaine quadrilateral, which finally ends in the downfall of the round table, or the interactions between Gawain and the Lady de Houtdesert in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, a highly worthwhile subject of discussion but from which most mystical implications tend to be unfortunately stripped. Or fairy is acknowledged, but swiftly denigrated as unimportant or somehow in conflict with the Christian ethics of the high medieval narratives. Merlin the Enchanter is reduced to something of a wandering deus ex machina, useful only in setting the stage for the Christian King Arthur. Morgan le Fay is most often seen as Arthur's malevolent half-sister, jealous, spiteful, and constantly trying, ineffectually, to do harm to the Knights of the Round Table. The Lady of the Lake almost fades into the background, and little seems to have been done to explain Mallory's apparently redundant decision to include both accounts of Arthur's reception of his sword, from both the stone and the lake apart from an attempt at compilation and reconciliation between seemingly contradictory accounts. That may, in fact, have been Mallory's intent. However, that is not the effect that the dual counts ultimately have, for they appear to unite Christian and pagan symbolism irrevocably, and to make the one inextricably dependent on the other. This effect is also exemplified in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, in which Gawain's conceptions of courtesy and morality are put to severe tests and ultimately improved by ministers of Anun. Far from undermining Christianity, or displaying a conflict between it and the older Celtic religion of the Druids, Arthurian literature elegantly infuses elements of fairy into present struggles of Christian morality, employing the spirits of the pagan past to continually test, temper, nourish, and bolster the virtue of the knights of Christendom. Though the action in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is precipitated by the arrival in Arthur's court of what in his translation J.R.R. Tolkien calls a fey man, who is Halfatine in Erd, and overall Enker Green, it is not divulged until near the end of the poem who the prime mover has been. that in my and be learned, the of Merlin, for full tim with that clerk that at ham. Morgna the goddess, therefore it is a nam, well does known so that town. The one who has designed Gawain's entire ordeal is revealed to be none other than his own aunt, Morgan, who is here given her customary title, Le Fay, or the Fairy, and is also referred to as the Goddess. Note 1. Morgan's descent from Celtic deity, particularly from the Morgan, has been well and repeatedly established, and though it is relevant, does not require in-depth exploration here. It is enough that she is recognized for the role she plays, that of a fae, or fairy, a denizen of the other world, and possessed of more than mortal power, i.e. magic. The prose Merlin describes her as gifted, having studied astronomy, nature, and medicine, and states that these studies earned her the title of the fae. However, her role is far more significant than as a clerk or magical scholar, and it seems more likely that she is indeed, as Lucy Allen Patton claims, by far the most important fae portrayed in the romances, and that she is essentially the fairy queen of Arthurian legend. End note. This orchestration by Morgan might be seen by some as an example of her malice towards Arthur's court, an attempt at indirect homicide towards both Gawain and, as Sir Bertilac states outright, Gynor, Guinevere, to grave and guard her to dich. 
and possibly by this simple literalistic interpretation, Arthur himself, since it is he who first attempts to take up the Green Knight's challenge, which Morgan may well have predicted. Certainly, if Morgan Le Fay's intent is destructive, if she does mean to destroy the round table and cause the death of her own half-brother, then this is not her only attempt. In an episode related in The Suite du Merlon, which also appears in Le Mort d'Arthur, Merlin tells Nivian, a lady of the lake, that Arthur's sister Morgan, whom he trusts completely, has just stolen his good and trustworthy sword Excalibur, together with the scabbard, and she has replaced it with one that looks identical, but is worthless. And tomorrow he is to meet a knight, Sir Acalon and the Mort d'Arthur, in single combat. That means that his life is in danger, because his sword will fail him when he needs it. The other man, meanwhile, will be using the best sword a knight could use, and will be wearing a scabbard that has the power to keep its wearer from losing any blood. Soon following that description, Rosenberg summarizes an omitted passage from his abridgment of the Suite du Merlon, as including, most pertinently, the machinations of Morgan le Fay to destroy her brother Arthur. Marjorie Rigby attributes Morgan's apparent malice in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and apparently all Arthurian literature, to an episode recounted in the Vulgate Lancelot, in which Guinevere found Morgan in bed with the young knight of Arthur's household, nephew to Guinevere. In order to avoid scandal, Guinevere, by pleas and threats, persuaded her nephew to end the affair. Morgan, pregnant and abandoned by her lover, sought out Merlin as the only one who could help her. Here, then, within a few pages, appears all the information about Morgan that is required to explain the Gawain poet's allusions. Rigby assumes, as do many, that Morgan's subsequent desire for revenge against Guinevere and fainting attacks on the Arthurian court indicate that Morgan le Fay is evil. Yet she appears confused by the inherent contradictions posited by Morgan's orchestrations of Gawain's quest. She asks, and fails to answer, If Morgan is evil, must not Bertilac, her instrument, be evil? Yet he appears attractive in his generous praise of Gawain and in his delight at Gawain's success. Anne Wilson asks the same question, citing Rigby, wondering independently how, if Morgan is responsible for the whole affair, why Sir Bertilac, an ostensibly autonomous and disinterested agent, is involved at all, and if Sir Gawain is responsible for either his triumphs or errors. She concludes that the hero, Gawain, himself is bringing about the enchantments, that how either Bertilac or Morgan appear, whether as evil or generous, or as fair or foul, is dependent on the hero's state of mind. This, however, despite Wilson's desire to establish more firmly the magical nature of the plot used by the Gawain poet, reduces the significance of both Morgan le Fay and the Green Knight to shadowy ambiguities whose interpretation is wholly dependent on the reader's interpretation of Gawain's psychology. They thus become impotent shades, not proper characters, still less the imposing and terrifying Fay one imagines them to be. Wilson fails to properly examine either Bertilac's or Morgan's role in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, if they are to retain any strength as characters, and certainly their moral value remains, apparently intentionally, undefined. One gets the impression that Wilson should like to exonerate Morgan, but cannot pin down why she should be exonerated. Even Philip Cargom, who one might expect is the chosen chief of the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids to be biased towards the Celtic, pagan, Farian side of the matter, hedges away from emphasizing any beneficial attributes of her magical nature. In his otherwise thorough book with Sir Richard Haygate on the history of English magic, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is not mentioned at all, and Morgan le Fay is only referenced twice with extreme brevity, once in a forty-two-word synopsis of the Mists of Avalon, and again in a short overview of the Arthurian legends. Cargom and Haygate write, Arthur's fate was sealed, however, when his sister, the sorceress Morgan le Fay, encouraged his estranged son, or in some tales, nephew, Mordred, to seize the throne. 
This is an even more negative standpoint than Mallory takes with Morgan, for of course in Le Morte d'Arthur there appears no such account of Morgan influencing Mordred's actions in any way. It is not clear from their book from what tale Cargom and Hagate derive this account. It does not seem obvious, however, despite the vast quantity of bad publicity she has received, that Morgan Le Fay is meant to act as a villainous character, though she may be perceived as such by those who encounter her. Though it is ordinarily perilous, and may lead one at times into uncomfortable situations, the incursion of fairy into the mortal realm, or, as is often the case, mortals wandering, by chance, into the other world, is almost always beneficial in Middle English romance, and never seems incidental on the part of the Fae. It usually takes the hero by surprise, even if he has in some sense wished for it to happen, but the people he meets when he wanders into the magical realm are seldom surprised to see him. Take, for instance, Sir Gawain's arrival at Castle Helt Desert. He has been wandering for nearly two months in the wilderness, and is weary from warring with wormes, wolves, woodwoes, with bullers, bears, boras, and with etinus, dragons, wolves, giants, and the rest, all here presented as ordinary dangers any errant knight might expect to encounter in the wild, the one less valiant than Sir Gawain might not be expected to survive them. He is also starving and freezing from the onset of winter, and he prays to marry him to some one. The next day, after his road has worsened, winding into dense trees and swampy ground, he sighs and prays again, this time both to Mary and to Christ, and crosses himself thrice. No sooner has he done this, the Gawain poet tells us, than suddenly he catches sight of the castle most comlicus that ever knicked acta. It is obvious that he has been directed here in direct answer to prayer. The castle appears directly after he has signed it himself and he certainly could not have overlooked it. The poet points out that it is surrounded by a puked palais peanut full thick, that umbataya monitre more than trois mille. Rather a large wall for a knight desperate for any form of lodging to simply miss. Yet it is in this castle that he will face his worst trials, and where all three of his fiercest enemies dwell, the green knight himself, Morgan le Fay, and the seductive lady whom the green knight will later call Gawain's Enmiken. How can it be, then, that Gawain's prayer would have directed him to such an unsafe house? J.R.R. Tolkien correctly points out that our poet is bringing Gawain to no haunt of demons, enemies of humankind, but to a courteous and Christian hall, where the court of Arthur and the round table are held in honor, and the chapel bells ring for vespers, and the kind air of Christendom blows. This, he says, regardless of whatever more ancient stones may have been built the gleaming but solid magnificence of this castle, whatever details may be discovered that the author inherited. It is clear, then, that since one would be as mistaken in calling Sir Bertilac's house evil as Sir Gawain was in referring to the Green Chapel as a place where Mück de Bote Midnicht the Dale his Matin's tale, that one would be equally mistaken in referring to the ruler of that house as evil. Note 2. The Green Chapel takes the clear form of a she, or Hill of the Fairies, firmly rooting the Green Knight and the one who magically transforms him in the other world, which was traditionally thought to be accessible through passages and hills. The same image is also seen in the fairy romances Yonec by Marie de France and the anonymous Sir Orfeo. End note. However, the ruler of Castle Hout Desert is, at least for the duration of this tale, not, in fact, Sir Bertilac, but Morgan le Fay. For though Bertilac would customarily be lord of the hall, and he claims to have rooked his wife's wooing of Gawain himself, it was Morgan who transformed him, and charged him with the task of putting to trial the great renewn of the Rune de Table. If Morgan, then, has assumed the mastery of this apparently Christian house, 
in which Christmas is celebrated and confession is taken by priests, and has not, thereby, despoiled its Christianity. If the Virgin Mary and the sign of the cross have pointed Sir Gawain directly thither, then one must look a second time at what Morgan's goals might be, and what the effects of her influence are, and not only in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, but in the Arthurian tradition as a whole. Lucy Allen Patton, in speaking about Morgan Le Fay's apparent hostility towards Arthur and his court, says that, in general, apart from those scenes in which Morgan tends the king's wounds, her hatred of him is persistent, and is the ruling motive of her career wherever it touches his. It seems, however, that these two aspects of Morgan's character, her tending of the king's wounds, and her persistent hatred of him, are irreconcilable if they are both understood to be solid attributes of Morgan Le Fay's history and character. One must either stand or fall. Morgan's display of grief at the likelihood of her inability to heal Arthur's wounds. Ah, my dear brother, she says, why have ye tarried so long from me? Alas, this wound on your head hath caught overmuch cold. Is shocking and nonsensical if one understands all her previous actions to have been driven by malicious intent. Why should she grieve her brother's imminent death if she's been trying to kill him for years? If that were her goal, one would be inclined to agree with Cargom, Haygate, and many of the more modern interpretations of the tradition, and imagine that she would mourn and honor Mordred, and continue to lambast Arthur. Fortunately, Patton, unlike most, does not stop there and delves a bit deeper into Morgan's potential mythological history, if not so much the moral implications of her actions. Patton speculates that, if Morgan be derived from the Morgan, there is an easy explanation for her otherwise puzzling twofold attitude toward Arthur, who is the object of her care and her vengeance. The Morgan stands in specially intimate relations to Cahulan. In one of his youthful exploits, she acts as his protectress, by spurring him on to valor just as he is about to be worsted in conflict. Despite the hostility ascribed to her after Cahulan's refusal of her love, she gives him her aid, and in his final battle until his last moment she does not cease her efforts to protect him. This seems a perfectly plausible theory as to the origin of Morgan's behavior toward Arthur, and does not, however, begin to explain why the Morgan behaves the way she does towards Cahulan, still less Morgan le Fay to Arthur or Gawain. There is, however, another explanation that relies on material with which both Mallory and especially the deeply religious Gawain poet would have been much more familiar than they would have been the details of the Celtic folklore they inherited, that their works are, of course, not conscious attempts at either allegory or duplication. The biblical book of Job begins with a conversation between God and Hasatan, the Satan, or literally the adversary, a shadowy figure in the heavenly assembly, who is allowed to propose a wager with the Lord that entails the otherwise unmotivated suffering of his blameless and most perfect servant, Job. God allows Satan to destroy first the prosperity with which he has endowed Job, and later to afflict his bone and his flesh, in order to prove to the accusing angel Job's steadfastness, what the Gawain poet might call his trautha, to confirm that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Both Satan and God then disappear for the bulk of the poem, during which Job laments his state, but refuses to curse God, and debates with his wife and friends as to the cause of his misery. The poem concludes with the imposing voice of the Lord answering Job out of the whirlwind, confirming his righteousness and rebuking the comforters, and, arguing a fortiori from the incomprehensibility of natural wonders, placing the question of human suffering beyond human understanding. Job is then instructed to make sacrifices for his less faithful friends, and his fortunes are divinely restored to him, in fact, doubled from what they originally were. 
God's indulgence of Satan's ostensibly petty demands has raised the question if the book is not an account of divine caprice, if not outright weakness. But that would hardly have been the view of the Gawain poet, an obviously devout Catholic, if one may judge by his writing. However, the poet was also clearly interested in themes of spiritual growth by journeys into the under or other world, where one suffers and endures instructive pain at the hands of a supernaturally powerful superior, generally God, and returns at the end to one's normal life, forever changed by the experience of the other world. This motif is exemplified in at least three of the poet's works. Pearl, in which a bereaved father beholds both his deceased daughter and the New Jerusalem in a dream vision. Patience, in which the flawed protagonist, Jonah, must spend three days and three nights in the belly of a whale for his rebelliousness. And Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, in which the titular hero lodges in a fay castle, though he does not appear to recognize it as such, is over the course of three days sorely tempted by the lady of that place, and afterwards receives his promised blow from the Green Knight, who judges him the foutless freak that ever on foot gede, despite his small lapse in lute. All three of these works are, like Job, marked by their cyclicality and by their instructive or beneficial contact with the other world. All three poems conclude with the same line that begins them, and Pearl's Dreamer, Patience's Speaker, and Sir Gawain all return to their places of origin, the earth the garden, contemplation on and acceptance of suffering, and Camelot, respectively. Pearl's Dreamer does not, throughout his actual vision, seem to truly understand anything the Pearl Maiden explains to him, or derive much comfort from his experience, but he does at the end recognize the folly of his discontent and bitterness. Jonah repents after being cast into the sea and spending three nights in the belly of the beast, a metaphor for the underworld if ever there was one. One aspect in which the Gawain poet's works differ from Job is in the imperfection of their protagonists, but that imperfection is what allows them, and most especially Sir Gawain, to learn from their mistakes and their otherworldly instruction, and improve morally. Job begins perfect and upright, and though he is, like all of the Gawain poet's protagonists, abashed by his encounter with the other world, he never errs and so cannot be restored or improved spiritually. He is instead rewarded materially. In Job, fairy takes the form of heaven, and the fae that inhabit it are described as the sons of God, including Satan most prominently as the only of this category who is named, speaks, or has any effect on the narrative. This view of comparing heaven to the other world, and its inhabitants as fairies of a sort, must also include God as lord of heaven, as a fay, comparable to a sort of omnipotent Oberon, the king of fairy in medieval literature, or Araun, the king of Anun. As has been stated, the poem begins with a wager between God and Satan, in which God authorizes the deprivation and suffering of Job, eventually resulting in his betterment. However, although Satan is the ostensible agent of this entire affair, after the destruction of Job's property and children, and the affliction of his body, Satan disappears for the rest of the poem. No mortal speaker is ever aware of Satan's involvement, and everyone, including the perfect Job, who remains sinless throughout, nor charged God foolishly, attributes Job's torments to a just God, never to any diabolical interloper. Though generally, to medieval readers, the idea that Job's righteous suffering vindicated him before God and defeated Satan was very appealing, the adversary of Job does not seem identical with the devil of Christian tradition who, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Though Satan here certainly goes to and fro upon the earth, and walks up and down in it, he does not seem to have been seeking Job out. He does not make mention of Job, nor of anyone else. God does, doubtless with full knowledge of Satan's inevitable reaction. 
Satan is not presented as the enemy of God, but rather as the same sort of unpleasant but moral extension of divine justice as the evil spirit from the Lord that descends on King Saul in 1 Samuel. It may seem that this exposition of the book of Job is something of a departure from an examination of the effect of fairy in medieval Arthurian literature, particularly in differentiating between Job's Satan and that of the New Testament, since medieval theology was disposed towards seeing Old Testament characters and episodes as types fulfilled by the coming of Christ. There is no reason to assume the Gawain poet was exempt from this trend in thinking. However, the themes and narrative structure of his poetry seem sufficiently similar to Job to imagine that he may have found inspiration there, or that it may have had an unconscious influence on his work. The character of Satan in Job, subsumed into the will of God as he is, is almost as peripheral as Morgan Le Fay is in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Both characters have similar functions, to test the trouth of good, noble, upright men, in ways that inevitably perplex them, but from which they ultimately benefit. When Sir Gawain returns home, he does so wearing the green girdle given him by the Lady de Houtdesert, which he describes as a token of untrauth of ihm tan in, and he mot nedes hit where will ye me last. For mon my hid in his harm, but unhap ne my hit. Gawain has just undergone a series of serious trials, a journey into the other world in which he discovered grave defects and inconstancies in his behavior. That such an errand into fairy was necessary for him to discover this is made clear by the contrast between his distress and solemn words and the reaction to his tale by Arthur's supposedly Christian court, who all laugh and lewd the rat. They have not had the revelatory experience of Anun, an experience for which it seems fitting to use the same word that Lawrence Besserman coined in describing Job's encounter with God, theophany. None of them have had God or the Fae show them the things in themselves that Gawain has been shown, and so they cannot identify with Gawain's newfound solemnity. Their taking up of the green baldric does not do, as it is meant, proper honor to Sir Gawain, for they have no feeling for its proper significance. In Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Gawain is the only character to undergo the purifying ordeals designed for him by Morgan le Fay, and a couplet the Green Knight uses to describe her, well does non so he haltes, that Honakun Makful Tam is strikingly reminiscent of the last verse of God's overwhelming speech to Job, describing the Leviathan, one of the most perilous of his creatures. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Morgan, then, as she appears in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, ought not to be read as evil, peripheral to the extent of being unnecessary, or as negating the choices made by Sir Gawain. Gawain treads as carefully as he can think to do while in the realm of fairy. His choices absolutely matter, to answer Anne Wilson's question. His infraction is minor, and so is the judgment passed upon him. Had his infraction been greater, it cannot be doubted that he would have fared less well. She is a tamer of Hihaltes, a humbler of Engardespreed. And so, while she is an apt parallel of Satan as he appears in Job, as a negative but not unwholesome force subservient to God's will, applied to produce a positive outcome, she bears no resemblance whatsoever to the prideful Lucifer, who aspired to be like the Most High, and is certainly of greater moral character than the diabolical witch most critics seem inclined to dismiss her as. In fact, in some stories of visits to the other world, such as that of Algier the Dane, that date back at least to the 14th century, Morgan is presented as having deeply Christian sympathies, despite her country being that of Avalon, an island represented as the other world. 
For a summary of this story, Howard R. Patch points to the outline given by Francis James Child in his notes on the ballad Thomas Rhymer. Six fairies made gifts to Augier at his birth. Morgan's gift was that, after a long and fatiguing career of glory, he should live with her at her castle of Avalon, in the enjoyment of a still longer youth and never-wearying pleasures. When Augier had passed his one hundredth year, Morgan took measures to carry out her promise. She had him wrecked on a lodestone rock conveniently near to Avalon, which Avalon is a little way this side of the terrestrial paradise. In due course he comes to an orchard, and there he eats an apple which affects him so peculiarly that he looks for nothing but death. He turns to the east, and sees a beautiful lady, magnificently attired. He takes her for the virgin. She corrects his error, and announces herself as Morgan the Fay. She puts a ring on his finger, which restores his youth, and then places a crown on his head, which makes him forget all the past. For two hundred years, Algier lived in such delights as no worldly being can imagine, and the two hundred years seemed to him but twenty. Christendom was then in danger, and even Morgan thought his presence was required in this world. The crown being taken from his head, the memory of the past revived, and with it the desire to return to France. He was sent back by the fairy, properly provided, vanquished the foes of Christianity in a short space, and after a time was brought back by Morgan the Fay to Avalon. In this synopsis, Morgan is portrayed unequivocally as La Fay, a fairy of Avalon, the otherworldly Isle of Apples. She is, however, not painted as the deceitful, vengeful, wicked sorceress most critics see her as, despite her natural enchantments. Augier is coming to her, as is the case in all her encounters with the mortal realm, is deeply unpleasant. He suffers shipwreck, and the deadly pain of the fruit that leads him to Avalon, but as we see in Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, the suffering he endures is essential to his benefit. Note 3. Apples, in Celtic folklore of the fruit most frequently associated with entry into fairy, but the consumption of fairy food by mortals as a means of entering and remaining in the other world seems fairly universal. See if the pomegranate in the tale of Persephone and Hades, and the Eucharist in the Christian tradition. End note. Nor is Morgan here needlessly cruel or immoral. She has clear Christian loyalties. She does not assume, as she would, were she more inclined to a Luciferian manner, the title of the Virgin Queen of Heaven, for correct Zagier, and when Christendom is endangered, she willingly permits him to depart from fairy in order to preserve it, graciously allowing him to return to the other world once his task is complete. Fairy here is not heaven by any means, and does not pretend to be, but it is certainly heavenly, and as Tolkien said of Sir Bertilak's fairy castle, no haunt of demons. Time and again, human encounters with the other world or fairy are shown to be potentially frightening unpleasant, or even acutely painful, in a word, perilous, but ultimately extremely beneficial experiences. Morgan Le Fay, therefore, as the principal minister of fairy in Arthurian literature, must share these characteristics. Note 4. Merlin, as a prophet possibly derived from the Druid tradition, and the half-human instructor and lover of Morgan and Ninua, both Fay, might be said to be the minister of Anun to the Arthurian court, but that is an argument best left for a separate essay. End note. She is frightening. She is dangerous, to be sure. But if one might ask Job if these were accurate descriptors of God, it is highly doubtful that he would deny it, and then he would go on to bless the name of the Lord. 
it is doubtful if the hot-headed Sir Gawain would have understood fully the role that Morgan played in his adventure. He does not so much as acknowledge Sir Bertilac's mention of her. But one would most certainly not expect that knight to give up the beneficial chastisement he earned for his lapse if given the chance. It cannot be said with any certainty whether the Gawain poet knew the effect of his including Morgan Le Fay in his poem, though his patience reveals that he certainly understood the beneficial aspects of suffering. It is highly unlikely that Mallory, or at least the characters in Mallory, had any notion of this effect, as he was principally a compiler of other people's stories, and his chief interest was in Lancelot, not in Fairy. Mallory's lack of interest, though, does not stop Fairy from leaking through, and his attitude towards compilation only serves to enhance, not detract from, the effect above described. Morgan, then, seen from the perspective of beneficent, if decidedly ungentle, emissary of the other world, rather than wicked witch and spiteful half-sister to King Arthur, must be reconsidered wherever she appears. One may observe that her attempts at Arthur's life, and those of his knights, are never successful, for her goal is to try and to improve, not to slay. Her attempt at frightening Guinevere to death in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and the similar account of her attempting to seduce Lancelot away from Guinevere in a noble tale of Sir Lancelot du Lac, need not then read as cheap tales of spiteful vengeance for a spoiled romance, but as an attempt by Morgan to preserve Arthur's kingdom. When one considers her final episode in the Mort d'Arthur, of how she and her ladies wept and shrieked at the death of Arthur and the fall of the round table, and her simultaneous contempt of both Guinevere and of Gawain's ostensibly Christian but faulty and inadequate values of courtesy, Guinevere becomes a symbol for that faulty, overly rigid courtesy. Morgan fears, correctly, that Guinevere, therefore, will be the downfall of the kingdom, in combination with the potency of Lancelot. So she sends the transformed Green Knight to frighten Guinevere to death, failing that, she attempts to separate Lancelot and Guinevere, hoping to neutralize the threat. She obviously does not care especially about getting Lancelot for herself, as the queens of North Gales, Eastland, and the Out Isles are also viable options for Paramore. Her motive is not lust, or even revenge, but simply to get Lancelot away from Guinevere, in the interest of preserving her brother's throne. A noble, not wicked, goal. Yet, try though she does, Morgan can no more prevent her foresight coming to fruition than Merlin is able to persuade Arthur that Guinevere is unwholesome for him to take to wife, or to shield his own heart from Ninua, and the kingdom falls. Such images abound in medieval literature. One of the most enduring themes throughout the Middle Ages is the inevitable transience and mortality of all things on earth, despite what efforts are invested by human or fairy to preserve them. All human endeavors ultimately come to an end and die, no matter how well intended. Mallory's account of the beginning of Arthur's kingdom, however, due to his compilation of conflicting accounts, demonstrates from its very conception the collaboration between the Christian god and the Celtic otherworld, both of which give their blessing to Arthur's kingship. Following the death of Uther Pendragon, Britain is left leaderless. Merlin the Enchanter meets with the Archbishop of Canterbury, and following this conference of the representatives of heaven and of fairy, there was seen in the churchyard, against the high altar, a great stone four-square, like unto a marble stone. And in the midst thereof was like an anvil of steel, a foot on high, and therein stuck a fair sword, naked by the point, and letters there were written in gold about the sword that said thus, Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king, born of all England. 
This sword is as clear a symbol of divine appointment as ever there was. Though many try, no one is able to draw it except the one chosen of God, the son of the king, whose birth was arranged by the art of Merlin. It is stuck in the stone and anvil, facing point downwards, echoing in its arrangement of its blade, hilt, and cross-guard, the image of the rood. It is lodged in an anvil, a symbol of creation, of the forging of metal blades, and of the beginning of the new kingdom. That anvil sits upon a great stone four-square, signifying the orderliness and solidity of God's ordinances. Furthermore, and most tellingly, though the young Arthur first draws the sword on New Year's Day, further signifying new beginnings, he is not finally accepted by the people as king until Pentecost, traditionally held to be the day when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus' apostles, anointing them with fire. However, despite all this, the sword that Arthur draws from the stone is not sufficient. Though it serves him for a time, it breaks in battle against King Pellinore, following which Merlin takes Arthur to a lake, where in the midst Arthur was ware of an arm clothed in white samite that held a fair sword in that hand. The arm is that of the Lady of the Lake, the fey spirit of that place, and the sword is Excalibur, which Arthur bears from then on throughout his reign. Excalibur is returned to the Lady by Sir Bedivere, shortly before the wounded king is taken away by the fey queens to Avilion, beneath the hill and behind the veil of death, where it is said that he will receive healing of his grievous wound. In this history and symbolism of Arthur's swords is shown more clearly than anywhere else the theological relationship between the Christian and the Celtic in Arthurian literature, between the other worlds of heaven and of Anun. The fae as they appear in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the Mort d'Arthur, and other romances such as Lanval and Sir Orfeo, are unlike the elfin grey that appear in the ballad Tam Lin, who at the end of seven years are said to pay a time to hell. Note 5. Though it may be arguable that this presentation of the fairies in Tam Lin is a result of the same misconceptions that has been the purpose of this essay to begin clearing up. End note. Though they are perilous, and are no more perfect in all their deeds than are the knights of the round table, the fairies of the medieval Arthurian tradition are by no means wicked. They are the servants of God's purpose, and have no direct conflict with him. Their appearance is as unpredictable, frightening, and portentous of marvelous adventures as is God's own, or that of his angels, in the narratives of the Old Testament. But the attention of the fae is just as sure to pretend imminent moral instruction and benefit through experience. Though these fairies began their imaginative existence as the pagan gods of Anun and the genii Loki of Celtic Druidry, there is in fact no conflict between the Christian ethos that pervades medieval romance and the ancient magical spirits that flit in the shadows of its adventures, for the latter invigorates the former, informing the adherents of the new religion with the wisdom of the old, and in this is created as mysterious and wonderful a blending as when the god of the heavenly other world took on the flesh of the mortal realm. Thanks for joining me for this special episode, and many thanks to Scott for allowing me to share this with you, and, you know, writing it and stuff. I'll be back soon with more episodes of the Fairy and Fantasy class, and there are also a number of Silmarillion seminar episodes in the works that will be coming your way soon. Don't forget to tune in to the Middle-Earth Network radio station at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.